great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. In the United States, homicide is in the top five causes of death for children. If a child is age one to four, it moves to the top three causes of death. Federal Bureau of Investigation statistics tell us that approximately 450 children are murdered by their parents each year in the United States. Filicide is the term used to describe the act of killing one's own child or children. From our opening, you can tell that this subject matter isn't for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Union, South Carolina is the county seat of Union County. The town of 8,500 people is about an hour's drive from both Charlotte, North Carolina, and Columbia, South Carolina. It's a small town, and like other small towns, it lacks cultural and employment opportunities for the people who live there. The big employer in town is Conso, a company that makes decorative fittings and trims for clothing and home accessories. In the 1980s, Susan Vaughn was a popular student at Union High School. While in school, she took a job at the local grocery store as a cashier. It was at this grocery store that she connected with David Smith. They started dating and married in March of 1991. The young family welcomed their first child, a boy, Michael, in October of 1991. I am so excited to talk about our sponsor, Blue Apron. They are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Blue Apron's mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. And because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, they are reducing food waste. Cooking together builds strong family bonds. I have a teenager and a 10-year-old, and when we can sit down for a delicious home-cooked meal that tastes like something you'd get at an expensive restaurant, it's a parenting win. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Upcoming meals include cashew chicken stir-fry with tango mandarins and jasmine rice, or roasted pork with apple, walnut, and farro salad. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked dinners. Blue Apron has several delivery options so you can choose what fits your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, you only get deliveries when you want them. My favorite part is that each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients, and it can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. 
Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash already gone. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Union was a small town where almost everyone knew each other. The Winn-Dixie, where David and Susan met, was a good place to work. David became the dairy manager and Susan the head cashier. In 1993, Susan gave birth to the Smith's second child, another son, Alexander. The young family appeared to be happy and normal. Young parents, two beautiful, healthy sons, steady jobs. But if you took a closer look, it became clear that the marriage and the family was in trouble. This tragic story started the night of October 25, 1994 when 23-year-old Susan Smith ran to a house near John D. Long Lake in Union. She pounded on the door, calling for help, crying, nearly hysterical. Her babies, she said, her boys, they've been taken. A call was placed to 911 and police mobilized. The story poured out of her. She'd been stopped at a traffic light on Highway 49, and a black man with a gun jumped into the car. He held her at gunpoint, forcing her to drive around. Finally, when they neared the lake, he'd ordered Susan out of the car. She'd begged, pleaded with him for her boys, her toddler sons in the back seat of the Mazda. He'd ignored her pleas and raced away with the children. Sometime in the late summer of 1994, the Smith marriage was over. Susan and David separated for good. Their marriage had been strained for some time. Part of it was their age. They were both in their early 20s, and part of it was the infidelity. Neither one of them was faithful to the vows spoken during their church wedding. Having two young children and full-time jobs, it's a lot for anyone to handle. On that terrible October night, David rushed to Susan's side. Marital troubles forgotten. Where were their boys? Would they see them again? The response by law enforcement was significant, not only local law enforcement, but the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the elite South Carolina unit known as SLED responded, and so began an intensive search operation that lasted for nine long days, days that were a heartbreak for David, Susan, and their families. All of them loved the two young boys, Michael, age three, and Alex, 14 months. As the days passed, Susan came under intense scrutiny. First, her report of the assailant, a black male, five foot nine to six feet tall, medium build, medium complexion, age 30 to 40 years. This generic description matched hundreds of men in the county and did very little to narrow the search for who had taken her boys. Then, Susan's timeline of events that evening before she was carjacked. Susan claimed to have stopped at a friend's house and done some shopping at Walmart. But Susan's friend wasn't home that night, and there was no record of her or the boys being at Walmart. When confronted with the lies, Susan revealed to police that she'd been hesitant to tell them she'd just been driving around all evening. She hadn't actually stopped at either place. Two days after Michael and Alex were reported missing, an FBI examiner gave Susan a polygraph, which she failed. 
When presented with the results, Susan became belligerent and investigators retreated and regrouped, realizing that a direct approach would not work with the young mother. Once she amended the story to say she was out driving around, she wouldn't back away from it. This case fascinated the public. Such a contrast to the other high-profile case going on in California, where football star and celebrity O.J. Simpson stood accused of murdering his ex-wife, Nicole Brown, and her friend, Ronald Goldman. The Smith case featured two darling little boys, a soft-spoken Southern girl, and her good-looking, albeit shell-shocked, husband. The media descended on the little town of Union, South Carolina, and Susan and David held a press conference. This is Susan Smith addressing the crowd of reporters. I just can't express it enough that we, we just got to get them home. That's just where they belong, with their mama and daddy. I want to say it to my babies, that <laughs> your mama loves you so much. With the OJ case, the networks learn that audiences have an appetite for stories like this. Throw in two adorable toddler boys and a tearful mother, it was a ratings bonanza. People couldn't get enough. Union was overrun with reporters from the major networks, cable networks, and of course, court TV. Around day four, police sent divers into John D. Long Lake. They were looking for any sign Susan's red Mazda protege or the missing children. They searched along the shoreline and a hundred feet out into the lake, but found nothing. After a week of digging into the past of Susan, Lee, Vaughn, Smith, police learned a great deal. Susan's father and mother had a tumultuous relationship filled with fights, some of them physical. There were often accusations of infidelity. Susan's older half-brother, Michael, a teenager, tried to commit suicide by hanging. The stress of his home life was overwhelming. In 1977, when Susan was six years old, her parents divorced. Her father, Harry Vaughn, became despondent and drank heavily. Susan was a daddy's girl and missed him terribly. Five weeks after the divorce was finalized, Harry Vaughn shot himself. EMS responded and he was rushed to the hospital, but to no avail. Vaughn was mortally wounded. Susan, I could really fall for you. You have some endearing qualities about you, and I think that you are a terrific person. Susan missed her father and wasn't consoled by her mother's new husband, Beverly Bev Russell. Russell was well-to-do and owned an appliance store in town. Linda moved herself and her three children into Bev's spacious home in an upscale neighborhood on the outskirts of town, just two weeks after her divorce from Susan's father was finalized. Bev wasn't new to parenting. He had adult children from a previous relationship. When Susan was 15 years old, Bev's daughter came to visit, and Susan gave up her room to her and opted to sleep on the couch. When it was time for bed, Bev was sitting on the sofa, so Susan snuggled in, placing her head on his leg. Once she dozed off, Bev fondled the girl and placed her hand on his crotch. Susan told her school counselor about the assault, and it was recommended that they attend counseling as a family. Susan, joined by her mother and stepfather, attended a couple of sessions with a therapist, but stopped after a few weeks. 
A year later, Susan went to her high school counselor and reported that while the counseling sessions were over, the molestation continued. While family services and the sheriff were notified, charges were never filed against Bev, probably because Linda pressured Susan to let the matter drop. Bev was a business owner, a churchgoer, a prominent member of the community. Bev also served as committee member of the Union County Republicans and the Christian Coalition, as well as the county chair of South Carolina Citizens for Life. Charges of sexual abuse against his stepdaughter would ruin him. Linda asked Susan, if Bev went to jail, what would become of the family? Susan did as her mother asked and kept quiet. During Susan's senior year of high school, she carried on relationships with two of her married co-workers at Winn-Dixie, where she worked as a cashier. Susan became pregnant. When she told her lovers of the pregnancy, both men broke things off with her. Susan had the pregnancy terminated and continued working at the store. In November of 1988, Susan attempted suicide by overdosing on pills. She was admitted to the hospital in Spartanburg for a mental health evaluation. When Susan returned to work at the Winn-Dixie in early 1989, she connected with David Smith. She'd known David in high school. He'd been a year or two ahead of her. David was taken with her, and he broke things off with his longtime girlfriend to start a relationship with Susan. By the end of 1990, they were engaged, and in March of 1991, the couple married. The wedding of Susan, who was 19 and pregnant, and David, the 20-year-old grocery store clerk, came less than two weeks after the death of David's brother, Danny Smith. Danny died from an infection related to his diagnosis of Crohn's disease. Danny Smith was only 22 years old. Grieving the loss of his son, David's father attempted suicide in May of 1991. Susan was five months pregnant when she discovered her father-in-law unconscious on the floor and called for help. When their first child, Michael, was born in October of 91, he was given the middle name of Daniel for David's beloved brother. Parenthood placed a strain on the marriage. They loved their sweet, dark-haired son, but the couple was not happy with each other. When David and Susan first separated in March of 1992, Susan stayed on in their house with Michael, and David moved into his grandmother's home, a place he'd lived off and on since high school, a home he'd once shared with his brother Danny. When the Smiths' first anniversary arrived, they were still married, but living apart and both were seeing other people. The marriage was off and on through much of 1992. Late in the year, Susan became pregnant with their second child. My dear Susan, you will without a doubt make some lucky man a great wife, but unfortunately it won't be me. Hoping that this was the sign they were looking for, the couple purchased a home on Tony Road in Union. Susan wasn't as happy during this pregnancy as she'd been with her first. She was moody and difficult, short with her husband, and he sought comfort in the arms of a co-worker. Susan would deliver her second child, Alexander Tyler Smith, by emergency cesarean section in August of 1993. As Susan recovered in their Tony Street home, David was there to help with the boys, but the happy family scenario was short-lived. Three weeks after Alex was born, David moved out again. 
Unwilling to return to Lewin Dixie, where Susan would have to report to her estranged husband and work alongside Tiffany, his new girlfriend, Susan landed a job at Conso, a textile company in Union. Susan began working as a secretary, and she loved her job. The job gave her new responsibilities like making travel arrangements and ordering gifts for clients, and unlike her job at the grocery store, Susan dressed up for work each day. The job at Conso also exposed Susan to new people and helped her make new friends. When Union got its first bar, the Hickory Nut, in 1993, Susan had her new place to hang out as well. In the early part of 1994, Susan began dating Tom Finley, whose father owned Conso. Tom lived in a house on his father's estate a few miles south of Union. Tom was nice-looking, educated, and well-off. Since he also worked at Conso, Tom frequently took Susan out for lunch during the week. From January of 1994 until the spring, the two carried on a relationship. In June, David asked his wife to give their marriage another go. She and Tom had broken things off, and David stopped seeing Tiffany. David was serious about making the marriage work, believing that his boys needed both of their parents. Despite efforts from Susan and David to make a go of things, it just wasn't working. Susan abandoned the reconciliation and filed for divorce in July of 1994. By August, David had an apartment in town with a bedroom for his boys. Susan, who had always had an eye for the finer things, saw herself having a life and a future with Tom Finley. What Susan didn't count on was that Finley was no longer interested in her. While she was eager to rekindle their relationship, he'd moved on. Tom Finley wrote Susan a Dear John letter, which you've been hearing pieces of. It arrived days before her divorce was filed with the county. Susan had no husband and no wealthy boyfriend to turn to. Desperate to continue her relationship with Finley, Susan appeared at his house and told him what Bev had done to her for years. Rather than soften him toward her, Tom was shocked by the outburst. He told her that their relationship was fun while it lasted, but it was over. By the fall of 1994, Susan must have been exhausted. She was working full-time, she had primary custody of her two young sons, and she was enrolled in college classes at the local university. She was also carrying on sexual relationships with Tom Finley, her husband David, and her stepfather, Bev Russell. Hoping to get Tom's attention, she'd flirted shamelessly at a work party, going so far as to kiss a married co-worker. It didn't work. If you want to catch a nice guy like me one day, you have to act like a nice girl. And you know nice girls don't sleep with married men. Tuesday, October 25th, 1994. Susan went to lunch with a group of co-workers from Conso, including Tom Finley. She sat quietly during the meal, not joining in the usual banter and chit-chat of a friendly work lunch. Afterwards, she asked her supervisor if she could go home. She confided that she's in love with someone who doesn't love her. Her boss told her she could go home, but Susan opted to stay at her desk. She later approached Tom to give him back his Auburn sweatshirt. He told her to keep it. He reminded her that while they were still friends, the romantic relationship was over. At the end of the day, Susan picked up her children from daycare, and while she was out, she ran into a friend from work. At this point, Susan was desperate to make a play for Tom. 
She returned to Kansa with her co-worker in tow. She needed someone to watch the boys while she talked to Tom. As she entered the building, her boss spotted her and felt deceived by Susan, who hours earlier had asked to go home because she was unwell. Tom wasn't happy to see Susan either and escorted her out of the building, returning her to her car and her children. At 8 p.m. that night, when the boys should have been going to sleep, Susan dressed them and loaded them into the Mazda. She drove around Union aimlessly. At 9.15 that Tuesday night, the McLeod family, who lived about a quarter mile from John D. Long Lake, was watching TV and settling in for the night. They were startled by a banging at the door. It was Susan Smith telling them that a black man just carjacked her and took her two young children. She needed help. She needed the police. When Sheriff Wells sat down with Smith that night to get the details of the carjacking, he noted that she was wearing an oversized gray Auburn University sweatshirt. The sheriff was not aware that this was the same shirt Tom Finley had told Susan that she could keep. The sheriff arrived at the McLeod house, followed shortly by David Smith and Susan's mother and stepfather. Wanting to give the McLeod family some peace, around midnight the sheriff suggested they relocate and the group returned to Bev and Linda's home. Susan rode back with David, and during the ride to her parents' house, Susan told David that Tom Finley might come over to see her and David should not be angry about it. While the Smiths and the Russells went to the Russell home, the sheriff returned to his office and called in the heavy hitters, the FBI and SLED, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division. He wanted all the help he could get to find these missing kids. Beginning Wednesday morning, Susan would be questioned each day, and on Thursday she was given a polygraph. One of the examiners noted that while Susan sobbed during the polygraph, her eyes did not tear up. David was also given a polygraph, which he passed. He would not be tested again. Meanwhile, helicopters with heat-seeking sensors flew across John D. Long Lake. Another day, 50 officers, accompanied by firefighters, searched the area on foot looking for the boys. While the community searched the woods and the fields, Bev Russell held public prayer circles asking for divine intervention on behalf of his grandchildren. Meanwhile, the black community was feeling pressured and tense. They were also skeptical of Susan's story. Could a black man drive around with two white children in his car and no one notice? Not likely. Tensions ran high between the black community and the white community while people searched for the Smith boys. During one of the interviews, Susan was asked if Tom Finley, not wanting children, had anything to do with their disappearance. Susan replied, quote, No man would make me hurt my children. They were my life. But like I've told you before, there are some things about you that aren't suited for me. And yes, I'm speaking about your children. Law enforcement knew early on that Susan was responsible for the disappearance of her children. One of her earliest statements revealed the truth. Susan claimed that she stopped at a red light at an intersection behind the Monarch Mill plant, which is close to Union's Main Street, when a gun-wielding black man forced his way into her car. She said there was no one around to witness what happened. However, the light at that intersection only turns red if there's traffic. Essentially, what she described was impossible. Law enforcement knew she was lying, but they didn't know where the boys were or if they were safe. So they looked. 
helicopters and divers in search parties, press conferences and morning talk shows and polygraphs. It took nine days, nine long and agonizing days, but Susan confessed. She told them where the boys were. She revealed what she'd done to her children. Susan's mother, Linda, and stepfather, Bev, mortgaged their home to hire defense attorneys for Susan. They were desperate to avoid the death penalty for her. It was no surprise that she was found guilty of first-degree murder. The long game was keeping Susan from the electric chair, a punishment that many, including David Smith, wanted her to receive. Her attorneys, David Brock and Judy Clark, were thoughtful and careful. They stacked the jury in their favor. They figured it would be easier to convince these people that Susan snapped and killed the children in a moment of weakness. And they gambled correctly. In a small community like Union, it would be difficult to find people who didn't know Susan and who were not familiar with the case, and the defense used this to their advantage. The prosecution, led by Tommy Pope, made their own play. They located a Mazda protege, just like Susan's vehicle. They put car seats in the back and weighted the seats with sandbags, the same weight as each of the boys. Then they mounted a camera to the rear deck of the car, giving them a view similar to what her sons would have seen that October night. Then they let the car roll down the ramp into the lake, and they watched, and they waited. It took six minutes for the car to sink. Six minutes that Susan Smith could have jumped into the water. Six minutes that Susan could have used to get help. She did none of those things. The jury watched that video. David Smith watched that video. Susan Smith watched the video twice. Once without the jury in the room, and she played tic-tac-toe or hangman on a notepad with part of her defense team. The second time she watched it, with the jury looking on, Susan wept as the video played silently for the courtroom. Susan's defense attorneys earned their fee. She was sentenced to life in prison and would be eligible for parole in 30 years, or about 2025. There would be no death penalty for Susan Smith. There are cases where law enforcement doesn't respond in a way that we like, and this case was not one of those instances. Not only was there a prompt and robust response from law enforcement, the community also rallied around them, aiding in searches and working as liaisons to welcome the media that descended on Union. The police, Sheriff Wells, saw Susan's generic description of a black carjacker as the distraction that it was and did their best to work alongside the black community. Mishandling could have created an extremely tense and dangerous environment in a city that was stretched to its limit. After Susan confessed, her older brother, Scotty Vaughn, spoke during a press conference offering an apology to the black community in Union. On behalf of my family, we want to apologize to the black community of Union. Uh, it's, it's really disturbing for us to think that that anyone would think that this was ever a racial issue. Um, and I'm thankful 
especially to many of my black friends who called me and you know to to comfort me and to tell me that they still love me. During the search for the boys, law enforcement could not predict if Susan would reveal what became of them. They needed to find those children, either on their own or with Susan revealing their location. Hoping to encourage her confession, a plan was put in place. A well-dressed woman, someone that Susan would like and admire, would come and speak to her privately about how 12 years earlier, she had been desperately unhappy and murdered her husband. After confessing and doing her time, she had a good life, a nice house, jewelry, the things Susan wanted for herself. The woman was, of course, a law enforcement officer playing a part. But that plan was never put in place because Susan finally revealed the terrible truth about what she had done. Susan's childhood was difficult, filled with violence, betrayal, and stress the abusive marriage of her mother and father, and then her father's suicide when she was just six years old, her mother hurriedly marrying Bev, who admitted to sexually assaulting Susan on multiple occasions, even having a sexual relationship with her when she was a grown woman with two children. Susan's suicide attempt in high school and her mother and stepfather denying her the counseling sessions that Susan clearly needed to deal with her life and the abuser she shared a home with. As an adult, David's brother died suddenly before David and Susan married, and rather than wait to honor his loss, Susan's mother pressed the young couple to get married. And they did so just days after the funeral. Linda didn't want them tying the knot in church when her daughter was obviously pregnant with her first child. And remember, when Susan was halfway through her pregnancy with Michael, she discovered David's father unresponsive after his suicide attempt and called to get him help. This incident had a happier ending, but it must have taken her right back to the loss of her own father at such a vulnerable age. When the boys were missing, David and Susan turned to each other, and they were surrounded by love and support. It was a week of family caring for them and caring about them. David's parents returned to town, his aunts and uncles arrived from out of state, Susan was interviewed on television numerous times and could not conceal her excitement. Turning to David at one point and giggling, We're going to be on TV. As her husband, hollow-eyed and shell-shocked, stared vacantly at the cameras. As I said, the attorneys that Linda and Bev mortgaged the house to pay for earned their money and Susan's life was spared. She has been, at best, a difficult inmate. Non-compliant. Manipulative. Two male prison guards lost their job when it was revealed that she was carrying on a sexual relationship with each of them. There have been broken rules, lost privileges, self-harm, drugs, fights. Prison doesn't seem to have reformed Susan at all. She is eligible for parole in less than 10 years. Her ongoing issues while incarcerated make it unlikely that she will be released at that time. While the crime hit the Smith family the hardest, the town of Union suffered as well. There was a memorial placed at John D. Long Lake, allowing people to visit the spot of the tragedy and pay their respects to the boys. In September of 1996, a family stopped to visit the site. In their vehicle was a family of four, accompanied by their friend and her two children. The two women exited the vehicle to view the memorial, 
The driver, Tim Phillips, stayed in the car, a late-model GMC Suburban, with the four children. While parked on the boat ramp, the transmission of the vehicle failed, and the car rolled into the waters of the lake. Angie Phillips and her friend leapt into the water trying to save the occupants. All seven of them drown. The same divers who extracted the Mazda containing the Smith children were called back to the lake to retrieve the vehicle and the bodies. In 1997, the boat ramp was demolished. Eventually, the memorial was moved up near the shoulder of the road and a guardrail was installed barring traffic from accessing the area near the lake. David Smith left Union and moved to Florida. He eventually remarried and has two children, a daughter and a son. He also wrote a book about his experiences. Linda and Bev Russell divorced not long after the trial, not to be outdone by the son-in-law that she holds responsible for the deaths of her grandchildren, Linda Russell also wrote a book titled My Daughter, Susan Smith. Linda remains in Union and drives the same roads that her daughter did that terrible night. The New York Times reported that when Linda Russell arrived to comfort her daughter after the alleged carjacking, the first thing that she did was admonish Susan for not locking the car doors. I will provide links to the books on my website, alreadygonepodcast.com. Beverly Russell, Susan's stepfather, the man who molested her through her teens and carried on a sexual relationship with her during the summer of 1994, still lives in Union. Union County Prosecutor Tommy Pope left the prosecutor's office and became a South Carolina House Representative. He's planning a run for governor of South Carolina in 2018. Smith's defense attorneys, David Brooke and Judy Clark, continue to practice and take on high-profile cases. Clark's notable clients include Ted Kaczynski, Zokar Sarnov, and Eric Rudolph. Sheriff Wells, who many viewed as a hero for his deft handling of the Smith case, was charged in 2010 with lying to federal investigators about his income tax returns during a probe into corruption in Union County. He was sentenced to 90 days in jail, three years, supervised release, and to pay both restitution and a fine. Susan Smith remains in prison. Her first parole hearing is in November of 2024. If you're wondering, I do feel sorry for Susan Smith. She lived her early years in a challenging, unstable home. She lost her father to a violent suicide at a young age and wasn't given help to process the grief and loss. She nearly lost her older brother to suicide as well. As a teenager, she was sexually assaulted by her stepfather, and her own mother, the one person in the world that she should have been able to count on to protect her, refused to do so. Once again, denying Susan counseling that she desperately needed. As a teen, seeking love and validation, Susan pursued relationships with married men. Susan was never given the support or the tools that she needed to process and move beyond her grief and security and loss. Where my sympathy fades is when her own children come into the picture. Linda Russell, Susan Smith's mother, now advocates for the mentally ill and believes that Susan does not belong in prison, that she is unwell and needs treatment. How different this story might have been if Linda Russell obtained treatment for Susan after the death of her father, 
or after the sexual abuse at the hands of her stepfather, Bev Russell. If Linda Russell had put the needs of her child before the needs of her husband and herself, where would Susan be? Susan isn't the first parent to drown their children in a fit of depression, psychosis, or desperation. In 2001, Andrea Yates drowned her five children while suffering from postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis. Yates was sentenced to prison, but her case was overturned and she was sent to a state psychiatric hospital for long-term care. Andrea had a long history of mental illness, including depression, and her husband, Rusty, didn't agree with a psychiatrist who recommended that Andrea never be left alone with the children. It was during one of Rusty's absences that this tragedy unfolded. Rusty's brother-in-law later revealed that Rusty felt depression was nonsense, and people who suffered it needed, quote, a kick in the pants. Andrea Yates remains hospitalized. Rusty Yates has remarried and started a new family with his wife, Laura. I would like to thank the talented Tim Scott of the History Dweebs podcast for giving voice to Tom Finley's Dear John letter. If you like history and comedy, check out History Dweebs. If you'd like to support Already Gone, please check out this week's sponsor, Blue Apron. Visit blueapron.com slash already gone to get your first three meals free with free shipping. That's blueapron.com slash already gone. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Our music is created by Luke Superior. Check him out on SoundCloud. If you haven't taken time to review the show, please join Vegas Runaway, Liz and Havoc, Storm Lightning Bane, and A Reader of Books by leaving a review on iTunes. Your positive reviews help others find the show. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com, or find me on Twitter at alreadygonepod. Thank you for listening, and please, be good to each other.
You've been loading up on things from Walmart. Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. 